I have a good friend named Brian. He pastors a church not very far from him. And he has an 83-year-old father. His dad's a very unique individual. Decades ago, he started a roofing company, and uh, it's gone really well. In fact, he's still known at 83 years old to occasionally climb up on top of a roof. You know anything about roofing? You know, that's a really tough job to do. You're carrying this massive packages of shingles on a ladder up to the top, working in very difficult conditions. And he's done that all his life. He's led his company, and he's kind of a unique individual. And that takes, that's really hard work, but he, he's also an artist. He loves to draw nature scenes, draw mountains and valleys and, and uh, oceans and all of this. But the unique thing about my, my, uh, my friend's dad is that he's never traveled, never traveled outside of Missouri, 83 years old. He said, when we were growing up, we never went on vacation. So he's, he's drawn these pictures of mountains and oceans without having ever been there. He's seen photos of them, but he's never actually been there. Well, last month, uh, they were buying a car. You know, you buy a car, not just, you know, you buy it anywhere. So they found a car in Las Vegas. And uh, they, he, Brian says, this would be a great opportunity to take dad and do some sightseeing, show him part of the country. And so he and his two siblings and his dad, his dad agreed, flew out to Vegas, got the car, and they drove back home. And they made sure they allotted enough time to, to go to all the great places in between, or several of them, went to uh, the Grand Canyon. And they, they didn't just go to the Grand Canyon, they took a helicopter ride over the Grand Canyon and then landed in the basin and took some pictures. These pictures came from my friend Brian. And uh, here's one of their helicopter is it's down uh, in, the, in the valley. And he said, his dad got it. He said, it's just priceless. His dad is very, you know, very um, um, kind of expressive guy. He gets out, he's just in awe. He said, oh my, I knew it was beautiful, but I didn't know it was this beautiful. I knew it was big, but I didn't know it was this big. And, his, you know, Brian, his, his siblings were just kind of crying, watching their dad, experience, you know, experience this for the first time. They went to Zion National Park. You ever been to Zion National Park? I want to go to Zion National Park. A picture so beautiful, just glorious. And, and he says, same thing, gets out. And he just looks at the vistas, looks at everything around him. And Rocky Mountain National Park, all of these places. And he was just filled with wonder. You see, all of his life, he had been painting mountains. But now, for the first time, he saw saw them in person, and it just blew them away. When it comes to the subject of the love of God, we can talk all day. We can read scriptures about it, and we can know it. But when you know it in person, and when you really draw near to it, you're gonna, you discover that it's bigger and more vast than anything you ever imagined it would be. It's breathtaking, overwhelming. It's an old hymn. I don't, I don't think we ever sang this song here. I didn't really grow up singing this hymn, but I, I love the lyrics of it. It's called, it's called The Love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And then the, the author of that hymn waxes poetic in the center line. He says, could we with ink the oceans fill our and were the skies of parchment made, and every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. Oh, my friends, if only we could know. If only we could know and really experience this love. 
And I want us to get just a little picture of this, the vastness of God's love from an Old Testament story. We're in the middle of a three-part series that we're calling Different God because it, some folks read the Old Testament, they get confused or they think that, that, that uh, God is so different, his personality is so different in the Old than the New Testament. I think, no, it's the same God. And if you just look a little deeper and explore, you will see marvels of God's love and grace and goodness. So today I want to spend some time in the book of Hosea. I'm going to read a lot of passages from this book. Hosea was a prophet who lived in the uh, 8th century BC. He worked in the northern kingdom after uh, when the kingdom split, there was north and south. The northern kingdom was called Israel and the south was just simply called Judah. And um, here's a prophet, he writes this book. And the basic plot is all about the, fa- the, the failure of God's people to be faithful to God and God's never-ending love. And, and what I think this shows us is that our finite minds cannot fully comprehend God's infinite love. We just cannot fully comprehend it. So I want us to go to, to, um, to Hosea, and it's a story. Um, and I hope that this would inspire you to go home and read the whole, the whole letter. It's 14 chapters. It's one of the minor prophets, minor and major prophets. Minor prophets are just because their books are shorter, that's all, not that they're less important. And, and here we see it's a story of unfaithfulness. And this is sort of the story of the whole Testament. God establishes a covenant with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And with a covenant, uh, each party has their part. Um, the people of God, they had their part to play and God had his part to play. Of course, God always kept his part. God always uh, fulfilled his part. But God's people were constantly going astray. They were turning to other gods. They were worshiping other gods. And uh, it was a constant problem. And here it was, 8th century BC. And we see the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. So I'll just give you kind of a, a sampling of this. Let me read some of the passages for you. In, in chapter 1, verse 2, we, we get introduced to this right away. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. I'll come back to that marriage in a minute. Chapter 4, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Chapter 5, I know all about Ephraim. That was Hosea's more affectionate way of referring to God's people as one of the tribes. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Um, it says, their de- deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. This is a constant theme throughout Hosea, is that God is seen married to his people, and yet they're always going to other lovers. Chapter 6, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Um, he's going on for I desire mercy not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings as at Adam they have broken the covenant they were unfaithful to me there they went through the 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 motions of worship but their heart was not given to God and I think it can all be summed up in chapter 8 it says Israel has forgotten their maker they've forgotten their maker what they've turned to idols now, they, they lived among the Canaanites, and the Canaanites worshiped all kinds of gods. The most well-known that we're uh, uh, told about in the Bible is Baal. And they turned to these other gods, and, there's the, and you wonder, if you, if you have read enough of the Old Testament, what, why do the people of God 
turned from this God. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, boy, that tells you right there, this God made it all. He's great and powerful. And they turned to these petty little gods, little statues, you know, made of wood or stone or metal. And they bowed down to them. Uh, Abraham Heschel in his book on the prophet says, um, there's a simple reason for this. For the people of Israel, the idols around them were more comprehensible. They could look at it and say, oh, there's a God. And they had very practical needs. In those days where life or death depended on the harvest, they had gods that, that, it, they, the, that if they did certain things for these gods and offer certain sacrifices and appease these gods, they would have a great harvest. So that was really very important to them and say they could see these gods. They, they could comprehend them and other gods that would help them in practical ways. Israel's God, who was invisible, was hard for them to comprehend, so they kept turning to these. Oh, they still worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they, they turned to these others, and, and God is brokenhearted. Now, I know today we're so sophisticated, we don't have idols, right? We have a TV show, American Idol, but that's it, right? Now, we may not bow down to little statues made of wood or metal or stone, but the three great ones, money, sex, power. Oh, I've seen as a pastor down four decades of ministry, I've seen people forget God because they get caught up in life making money. Now, hey, making money is important. You got, you got to live, right? But I've seen people lose their faith over this, get distracted with other stuff. Oh, we have idols today, friends. Oh, we do. And sometimes because this great God, just we can't comprehend him, so we just get caught up with the stuff that we need for life, we think we need instead of God. So what does Israel do? What does God do with this? He's, um, he grieves over their turning to other gods. And he, uh, in the language of Philip Yancey, he, he, he's this jilted lover whose, whose, whose spouse is constantly going astray, but he continues to love. He cannot stop loving Israel. Here's some um, uh, verses here. Uh, his wife conceived again. This is the second. The first was a son. Gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show Israel, love to Israel, that I should all forgive them. So he, he says, name one of your children not loved. And then he says, yet the Israelites, and after that, she, after she weaned not loved, she had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I'm not your God. So you turn to these other gods. But yet, a couple of verses later, God can't help himself. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in a place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. <coughs> he's so frustrated, he's so brokenhearted over their, their unfaithfulness that he, he says, I'm not gonna be your God anymore. And he says, okay, I'll be your God. Because he just loves them so. And then I guess one of the things that makes Hosea unique is that um, God has Hosea um, do this sort of drama before them in real life. He has him marry a woman who is known for her promiscuity. Don't believe she's a prostitute per se, um, but someone who's just simply not faithful. And we're introduced to this in chapter 1. It says, um, chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, there's a couple mysteries in Scripture. 
One is why anyone would make their daughter Gomer. <laughs> I guess she had a brother named Goober. If you watch Gomer Pyle, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, daughter, m- moms and dads, don't name your daughter G- Gomer. Okay, um, and then he does this as an illustration because he says, I want people to see your relationship and I want them to see how they're treating me. So he marries Gomer, they have some children and she goes astray. She turns to other lovers, she starts having affairs right and left. And according to law, he sends her away. And then you get to chapter three. The Lord said to me, to Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man as in an, as, and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, which was a part of pagan worship. So it's like their marriage is this object lesson. And, and God is wanting the people to see and their hearts to be touched because as anyone in that situation would feel the pain and the heartache of unfaithfulness, God says, I want you to see the pain and the heartache that you're bringing on me. I've loved you with an everlasting love and yet you keep turning to these other gods. This marriage has gone bad. And and God feels it. There's this word called pathos. Pathos talks about deep emotion. And our God has it. Our God is not an indifferent God. And yeah, the Old Testament um, gives many examples of God's anger. Yet God's anger is not man's anger. Uh, Our anger is all messed up. We're gonna take a whole month to talk about anger in August, okay? But God's love is not that way. Um, It comes out of a deep hurt and love for his people. So you see it in in, in Hosea. It says, God speaking, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees. Very important for the economy of Israel. Which she is said were her pay from her lover. She's, they, were, they were sacrificing to these false gods and saying, oh, the, the good harvest came from them. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with jewel, rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me, she forgot. Do you see the broken heart? Do you hear God's broken heart? Then in chapter nine, the days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person, a maniac. They just write off the people who would come and speak to them. And you hear the heart of God in these passages. And, and Hosea, like a lot of the prophets, many of the prophets, their message is, you need to turn back to the Lord because bad things are coming. You need to turn back to God. Because here, here's the deal, friends. Um, if you reject the light, all that's left to you is darkness. If you, if you reject the one who is life, all that's left for you is death. If you reject the one who is wisdom, you, you, you're, all you're left with is foolishness and he's warning them, you're gonna run outside of my cover, you're gonna, gonna go past my coverage and you're gonna be in trouble because you're gonna be surrounded by enemies and they're gonna consume you and the prophets are constantly warning the people of God, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord. And yet, you get this sense, this isn't what God wants to do at all. Um, there, there's, there's prophet Jeremiah, he's known as a weeping prophet. He serves in the, in the southern kingdom, in Judah, centuries later. Now, Israel's already been taken away by the Assyrians, they're gone. Judah, same fate is becoming them. Now, sometimes Judah was faithful, sometimes they weren't. The northern kingdom never was. 
And Jeremiah's warning, guys, you, you gotta turn. You gotta turn back to the one who is your first love. You gotta turn back to him and they don't. And they get destroyed by the Babylonians. And he sits down and writes this book called Lamentations. A, a, a lament is a, is a song of sorrow. And, and, and Jeremiah just laments what has happened to uh, God's people because of their un, unfaithfulness. Now, um, and so the whole book is just lament. Oh, God. Jeremiah said this was coming, and then when it comes, he weeps over it. His heart breaks that God's people were destroyed by the Babylonians and taken off into captivity. There's a verse I want you to hear. In the very center of Lamentations, if you look at the very center, there's a verse. Now, later, people came along, put chapters and verses that wasn't in the original. It wasn't like, you know, Jeremiah was writing, okay, chapter one, verse one. That's not how they did it. Someone later came along. But stylistic, in the literature, the very middle of Lamentations is this. For God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Um, Jonathan Edwards, one of the early leaders in the Christian church in America, uh, led during the first great awakening, wrote this. He says, though God is just, yet his mercy in some respects said to be more natural to him than all acts of justice itself that God shows. It says, there's a kind of violence done in himself. There is something in it that's contrary to him. As the scripture says, God says, I do not desire the death of the ungodly. When he, ex when he exercises acts of justice or judgment, it is for a higher end and there's always something in his heart that's against it. But when God shows mercy, it says his whole heart is poured into this. When God has to bring judgment, he does it reluctantly and he does not do it willingly. He does it as a last resort and it is heartbreaking to him. Just like parents, right? If a parent comes up and says, man, I love to punish my kids, that's a sick parent. You know, you love to pour goodness and blessings and everything on your kids. So does God. That's his heart. He gives his whole heart to this. So you've got to understand that about God's judgment and his anger. It's a story of unfaithfulness. But it's also a story of love that will not give up. So in the midst of all those verses that um, I read earlier, now, let me read this. In, uh, in chapter 2 in Hosea, it says, I will betroth you to me, to me forever. I tell you, the subject is, is marriage. God is married to his people. His people are unfaithful. He says, I will marry you. I, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you, betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved. I will say to those not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. He keeps turning back over and over again to his people because it's the very heart of God. And then you get to chapters 11 and 14. The, these are probably my two of favorite, I keep saying that about a lot of verses in the Bible, but this is two of my favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament. Hosea 11 and, 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 and uh, Hosea 14. Where God just pours out his love for his people who have been unfaithful. 
and served other gods. Listen to this in, in chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went astray from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was, listen, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Do you hear this affectionate language? God says, I taught Israel how to walk. Remember parents when your kids first walked? We have kids. Do you remember those days? Now I get to experience that through my kids as they help their children walk. And I think it always looks like something like this. Nolan is our youngest, and uh, he started walking crazy early age, like at nine months. And there's a video they, they sent. Kids are always sending videos. And this is Nolan, his first steps. And you can turn the volume up. You need to hear that. Can you, can you get that? Yeah. There we go. They're pretty excited about it. Now, isn't that what every parent does when you're a child? You're excited. You're clapping for him. And now he sees the camera. Yeah, he's totally fixated on the camera, the little ham. Oh, there you go. Right? This is what you do when you're kid. Yeah. Okay, Nolan, don't look at the camera. Look at mom over there. Yeah. Oh, there we go. You, everybody, you all did this, right? Everybody. And you'd get so excited, right? And he's so excited. Boom. And it's, it's just one of those really sweet moments in parenting when uh, you're teaching your kid to walk and all they can do is look at the camera, right? One last one. Here he goes. And boy, he can crawl. Here he comes. End of video. <laughs> God, can you picture? God says, this I did. I taught Israel to walk. And the joy and the pride in his heart. He says, I, I brought them to my face as a parent brings a, a child to their cheek. And I loved them. That's God's love. And then you get, to, so there he uses kind of this metaphor of a parent this parent who's just making over his child. And then you get to chapter 14. And it's just, it's breathtaking. Um, when God speaks, and the whole book ends on this note. Chapter 14, verse 1, return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria can't save us. We will no longer mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. And then God says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. And then God kicks in to what is, is it's Hebrew love poetry. He starts speaking poetry that a lover would speak to his or her lover, to his people. It's the same language, same metaphor, same kind of analogies used in the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, as it's called sometimes. And he, he says, I will be like the dude Israel. He will blossom like a lily, 
Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us. But you ever been in a pine forest? Yeah, you ever been in a pine forest? Taking in that aroma? It's kind of drawing on all of these images to pour out his love. People will dwell again in a shade that will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Again, this is Hebrew love poetry. They say, I'm going to pour out my love on my people. This people who have not turned back, by the way. They still haven't turned back to God, but he loves them still. He's not loving them because they've got their act together. He loves them even when their act isn't together. This is grace. Undeserved favor. Grace. It's seen all over the, these pages. And what does he say? Um, he, get, he paints a picture here of vitality in life. When we turn back to God, he says, this is what happens. Three things. The, uh, it, there's freshness and newness. So I'll be like the dew to my people, like a brand new day. When we pray for awakening, when we turn our hearts back to God, there is a freshness, there is a vitality, there is an awakening that comes back to us. We, we become alive again. And then stability, like a cedar of Lebanon, he'll send down his roots. Lebanon was known for their majestic cedar trees. They were just glorious. And they were a picture of stability. And when God's people turn to him with all of their heart, they become this picture of stability in an unstable world. And then strength. You flourish like the grain. They'll blossom like the vine. All of these images, again, they may not comprehend, but, but God is expressing his heartfelt, intimate love for his people and then he says, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. You know, you thought all these idols were provided. No, no, no. It's from, it's every good gift comes from me, God is saying. Um, how do you comprehend a love like this that keeps on loving, that keeps on giving even when the other is unfaithful? and turning to other lovers. I don't think you do. You can't grasp it. It's a story beyond our comprehension is what this is. Because God's love is so great, so big. His mercy and compassion beyond any of the categories that we have that we simply don't have adequate language for it. Um, I think the prophet Isaiah tries to to capture this. Um, let, me, let me read a, a little portion from Isaiah. You may be familiar with these words. Maybe you've quoted them where God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You've heard those verses maybe? Normally, we quote those verses when we're talking about God's sovereignty or when God weaves together a plan that we never would have seen coming. You know, his ways are bigger than my ways. We'll say that often. Like, wow, I don't know how all that figured out. Uh, his thoughts are not my thoughts. God is greater in thoughts, but you, know what, you know, want to know what the context of those words are? Look at the context. Verse six, 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for, for he will freely pardon. And then he says, for my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways. What he's saying is my compassion, my love is so different from anything you know so different from anything you've seen that you, it's, it's beyond your comprehension. We don't have, it, it stretches our, our minds, it, it, it stretches our capacity to comprehend it because um, as a result of the fall, our capacity to comprehend the love of God has been shrunk. Our view of God's love is tiny. God's love and compassion and mercy and grace are so big and so great that it's beyond anything. Our mental horizons are stretched because God's heart is invincibly, expansively set upon us. Dane Ortland tries to make this point. He says, God isn't like you. Even the most intense of human love is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartfelt thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. God's thoughts aren't your thoughts. His compassion and his mercy and his love are beyond anything that you and I have ever known or seen or experienced. That's why only one verse I'll quote from the New Testament. That's why Paul praised this for the Ephesian church. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul says, I'm praying for you that you can comprehend how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God because it's beyond comprehension. If you could just grow incrementally to see, oh my gosh, it's higher than the heavens. It's deeper than the oceans. The love of God. Because could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made and every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. Could not write enough about this great love of God. And that's how great and good and it's just one little picture. And so God's love. And this is, again, this is from the Old Testament. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who loves us with a love that will not let us go, that loves us with a love that is so big and so vast and so amazing. Our minds cannot comprehend it, but we pray that maybe we can comprehend it a little bit more, and I pray that we can today as well. In just a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table where we see a picture and why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me because we need to be reminded of this great love of God because we don't have categories for it. We don't have language for it. That's how big and great it is. But here's the invitation. Let me go back to this. Return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you. So friends, when you come to communion today, bring some words. Say, forgive all our sins. Receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Syria can't save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never say again our gods to those to what our hands have made, for in you the fatherless finds compassion. Or we could say, 
Money can't save us, power can't save us. Only God, only God, forgive us. And his love comes rushing in. His love is poured out, we experience it. And maybe today you've been turned to other things and now your heart can return to the Lord this very day. And maybe your act of response is communion itself to receive the love of God as demonstrated in the cross and the empty tomb. This love is available to you even now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the remarkable story of Hosea and this book and your never-ending love for your people, a people who were constantly turning away and unfaithful, faithless, Sometimes we resemble that. As the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so we return to you. I want to know your love today. Like my friend's dad, it's, it's, it's beautiful to draw paintings and talk about glorious mountains, but it's a whole other thing altogether to experience them and to see them in person. And I pray that some in our midst today will experience your love in person. That your love will become more real to them even now as we gather and as we gather around this table today. Thank you that we have this constant reminder of your never-ending love in the cross of Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, we're so glad you tuned in today. If you like this video, don't forget to give it a thumbs up and share it with anyone you think could benefit. We're excited about all the content we have coming up and can't wait for you to see it. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss out. And if you're curious about LaCroix or if you're looking to take the next step on your journey with Jesus, check out lacroixchurch.org. We hope to see you again soon.